0: If you've been following the premier on Twitter, or if you do, or some of his comments in the media over the last week, 10 days, uh, 12 days, I guess, since the invasion started, um, he immediately jumped in talking about Alberta oil, Alberta oil and how we are an ethical source of oil and we can replace the Russian source of oil. And it sort of plays right into something he's been talking about for a long time in terms of, you know, take a look at if you are not relying on Alberta produced oil. You know, now you're opening the door to places like Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Venezuela. There's the list. We know what they are. Um, And he says this is a perfect example of why the focus should be on what Alberta can do to provide, quote-unquote, ethical oil rather than some of these other regimes. Now, Mark Mahisla is an energy journalist and analyst and author, and uh, he joins us on the show to talk about this. He put out a piece recently titled, Let's Admit the Truth, Alberta's Oil is Unethical. Markham joins us now to explain. Thanks for joining us, Markham. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. Always a pleasure. So this piece, uh, walk me through it here. As I say, it's it's titled, Let's Admit the Truth, Alberta's Oil is Unethical. Tell us why you think that.
1: The ethical oil argument dates back about a decade to uh, Ezra Levant's book, uh, Ethical Oil, and uh, Ezra, the uh, provocateur and political, uh, you know, activist who now heads up Rebel Media, infamous Rebel Media, argued that basically uh, Canada is a democracy and it respects human rights, and so many of the other uh, international oil producers don't. They're tyrannies, and we uh, that uh, therefore Canada's oil, Alberta's oil should have an advantage it should be because it's ethical that's it that's the ethical oil argument i argue that in fact there are other criteria for determining whether an oil could be considered ethical and i've got three okay one is and this is particularly true as we become more and more concerned about climate change and that is high emissions intensity the oil sands makes up 11 percent of national like canadian GHG emissions the oil and gas sector Altogether makes up 26 percent, and the oil sands crude, which is, you know, logically the the type of crude that would be increased that we'd see a higher production levels, is 69 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. The American standard is about 37 kilograms. The European standard is 18 kilograms. The Norwegian standard is nine kilograms. I mean, our oil, unfortunately, is very, very carbon-intensive. So that's number one.
0: But hang on, Mark. With that one, as you know, there's all kinds of work. There's all kind of discussion. And I don't know, I mean, to get it to zero you know, down the road. And they have taken steps to drastically reduce the per-barrel emissions, haven't they? Well, the key word in your
1: comment is drastically. Okay. What they've done over the last 10 to 15 years is bring it down by about 20%. It used to be 80 kilograms. Now it's it's 69, and there's, they're rapidly running out of opportunities uh, to, to do it without carbon capture and storage. So of the, the four big companies, Suncor, Sonova, CNRL, Imperial Oil, yeah. only Suncor has made a public commitment to bring its emissions down before 2030. And the rest are basically rel- going to rely on carbon capture and storage uh, to do that, um, but, and we're getting a little ahead of myself, but that's sort of my second objection. They're asking uh, the, fe- the government, and we'll, we'll, this means the federal government, not the provincial government, to put in $50 billion of the $75 billion cost to decarbonize at the very same time they're making refer- record profits and sending record returns back to investors. So, the, I mean, the question arises, why should the taxpayer pay for it? When when the uh, the company is has record free uh, profits, and so that's that's point number two, and the third one is the industry's enormous environmental liabilities. The oil sands, for instance, has uh, thirty seven tailings ponds with one point mm-hmm. three trillion liters of toxic tailings. The, uh, the reclamation is estimated to be thirty one billion dollars. Only nine hundred million has been put in security. With the provincial government, the industry, and the regulator have kicked this down the, uh, this issue down the the road many, many times, and there's still no real way to re, to economically reclaim them. and And then, of course, you've got orphan wells and inactive wells, which is a whole other scandal on its own. Add all of those up together, and it I think there's a credible argument to be made to counter the the premier. That in fact,
0: the oil is unethical. And I think you're, I mean, there's definitely issues when you're talking about oil and gas and the environmental issues we know. I mean, they're well documented. And will they get a handle on them to the extent that they say they do? But a couple of the things, like, you know, you point out uh, Norway, what is, they're 9%, right? And we're, we're 36%. 9, kil- nine kilograms nine, of CO2 equivalent. Now, but I mean, when you take a look at Norway and Netherlands, I mean, the governments funded their carbon capture programs there quite heavily. I mean, the partnership between government and industries is pretty well established in this field.
1: Right. But the, there's only one small carbon capture project. The reason why Norway's uh, uh, car, uh, average uh, CO2 per barrel is much, much lower is the product. Is because it's the, of the resource. Yeah. The, you know, the, the uh, Johan Severedup field has uh, carbon intensity under one kilogram of CO2 equivalent per barrel, literally 1% of the average Alberta, Alberta crude. So... Uh, it, yes, it's true that there's been some uh, support for carbon capture st- storage in, uh, in Norway, but that's only a small part of the story.
0: What about the fact, okay, and, and you're right, you talk about the U.S., you talk about Norway, you talk about Netherlands, places like that, but the the, the, the example that Jason Kenny's talking about, we're seeing it right now with Russia. Um, when we take a look at um, carbon zero or net zero pledges, we take a look at the, the global methane pledge, uh, all these sorts of things that Canada is involved with, that Alberta is involved with, we talk about these things, we Maybe we don't do a, a, a fantastic job, but it's it's part of the discussion, and there are rules and there are regulations. None of those pledges apply in Iran or in Russia or in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they don't talk about net zero. I mean, in terms of the ethical approach that way, is it perfect? No, I agree with you. But at the same time, at least it's a, it's a topic of conversation, and it's a goal in Canada.
1: Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you on that basis, if it's uh, the quality of our talk, we're absolutely much better <laughs> off than Russia and Saudi Arabia and all the countries that, that you just mentioned. We're not so good as a rule at implementing because I've been interviewing the oil sands, uh, you know, for a decade uh, about this. And I've talked to, you know, VPs of technology, at some of the producers, and, they, and they've talked about this wonderful, like, solvent substitution technology, for instance, that they've got, and they, but they've never implemented it at scale. They've never done it. There's never been any motivation at scale. And when now that the, the pressure is finally on and the federal government later this month is going to bring out an emission reduction plan, which will include an oil and gas emissions cap, that's all well and good. But it's uh, it's only going to bring emissions down incrementally each year. And, and there, here's an important point, Shay. When it comes to absolute emissions, uh, emissions in oil and gas, particularly the oil sands. Have never ever dropped as long as output keeps increasing. Right. Yeah, so and production's
0: right, higher than ever right. before.
1: And the the uh, Environment Canada is predicting that by forecasting by 2030 that oiling there will be another 900 thousand barrels a day of, of Canadian oil production that comes that's coming on stream. So that, in my opinion, is going, is likely to wipe out any of the gains that will come from you know emissions intensity reductions.
0: Okay, I, I I understand a lot of the arguments you're making around the environmental side of this, and I think you make some great points, and and they're, they're legitimate. Where your argument falls apart for me is right here, when you say that, you know, Russia, the regime that is, you know, basically invading Ukraine, killing people, waging war, thirty six percent of their general revenue comes. From oil and gas, right? Um, we're talking about two different things here. There's the ethics of the environment, but there's also the ethics of the regime and what the money is used to mean. Alberta's not waging war on sovereign states. Um, the money is not being used for those kinds of activities. And when you talk about ethics, that's a huge consideration, is it not? It absolutely certainly is. The,
1: the answer is whether Alberta oil or more oil and gas in general is the, is the solution. Because what's being left out of this discussion is that is Europe. Uh, do you, have, are you aware on social media or in any news reports, Shea, of uh, Europeans clamoring for more Alberta oil and gas? It, no, no. The, Europe actually has their long-term energy plan has for a long time now been to electrify, to switch off fossil fuels and get on to uh, on to uh, renewable energy and other sources of clean energy. In some countries, it's nuclear. And now you already see some of the, the European leaders saying, you know what, the 3 million barrels of oil uh, that we import a day from Russia, the 40 percent of our gas that comes from Russia, we're not going to replace it with just another source of oil and gas. We're not going to you know, just import it from North America or some other. Right. We're going to accelerate our transition to, to electricity, uh, to basically to electrify so before we get, you know, ahead of ourselves and start talking about, you know, the building the Keystone XL pipeline and, and uh, you know, increasing production and all of that, we, we really should be talking to our customers and find out if, in fact, uh, or potential customers, and see if, in fact, they are interested in, uh, in what we have to sell.
0: Yeah, and and this is the argument, Mark, I think you get into this, the time frame thing, right? Because you're you're right, it will intensify the transition to electrification and all this. But right now, they won't step in and say, we're not buying Russian oil and gas anymore, because they're not in a position to make that decision today. And for the rest of this week, if you know what I mean, like, at this point, they're going to continue to pay Russia for oil and gas, because they have to well we 're going to see
1: what they're going to do because uh, later on this week uh, the EU will release its updated energy plan yeah and i 'll be watching that with with great interest because that will signal what their strategy is
0: and what so do you, we'll, realistically we'll what can they do
1: well the uh, just on the gas side, the International Energy Agency has already released a plan about how Europe could cut its uh, its gas imports from Russia dramatically within the next year. I think it, it cut it by 40%. And that so quickly? Really cut, that quickly, and then get off Russian, uh, Russian gas entirely within a, a very short uh, time frame. So they're already thinking about this. You know, the IEA and the EU and the various... Uh, and, and look, there are plenty of uh, EU countries like Poland that have wanted to get off oil, uh, Russian oil and gas uh, for a long time and now see this as an opportunity. So <laughs> there, there, this is a very complex situation. I mean, you've got issues on the demand side. You've got issues on the supply side. I mean, how long does it take to build a pipeline? It takes a long time oh, sure. in North America. How long does it take to ramp up production in uh, in the oil sands? Well, it takes a long time. And here's another little wrinkle for you, uh, Shay, that we haven't talked about and is not being talked about in Alberta. Mexico announced a couple of months ago that it's going to stop exporting about 600,000 barrels of heavy crude oil to the U.S. Gulf Coast. That That's direct. Mexican mine is a direct competitor with uh, Alberta heavy crude in that particular market. So Alberta is going to have lots of other market demand to worry about uh, and that it'll have maybe even trouble fulfilling that demand, responding to the shortage in the marketplace, uh, before it needs to worry about exporting more oil to Europe.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I'll, we'll watch the meetings closely. Unfortunately, I'm out of time uh, for this uh, interview, Mark, but we'll do it again soon. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for your time today. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jake. You bet. Thanks, Markham.